Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Here you are. I wondered, what, couldn't find Larry Santoro and the bell downstairs in the dark? Oh, come in, come in, come in. There's a chill seeping in. Uh, that's appropriate, right? It's winter. Yes? Sit, take a cushion, grab a skin, have a drink. We're in an apocalyptic frame of mind tonight. A few words. I hope you're enjoying this thing of ours, these weekly gatherings, uh, ghost and goblin stories in the flickering dark here in the nook. If so, stop by the Tales to Terrify website and drop us a line in the forum. Go to the website. Uh, that's with all the usual letters and punctuation marks. Then TalesToTerrify.com. All that's one word with a dot before the com. Am I fishing for compliments? Yeah, sure. You betcha. Uh, looking for thoughts, suggestions, complaints, that too. Hoping you'll accidentally click donate, but of course, well, not accidentally, you can't do that by accident anyway, but I hope you'll consider doing it on purpose. Keep the nook in candles and fresh dust. Another word or two. I found out last week that an old friend, Robert Weinberg, went into hospital recently for some serious work, and I wanted to send good words, good wishes, good hopes into the world for strength and recovery. 
All the best to you and Phyllis, Bob. Okay. Settled? I said it's an apocalyptic kind of night. We've got short fiction by Nick Mamatas, and I'm probably not pronouncing that the way people normally do. It's Mamatas in HWA circles. But I do believe the proper Greek pronunciation is Mamatas. We've also got a poem by Dennis M. Lane. I almost hesitate to call it a poem. It's called Primetime Apocalypse, and it's kind of a production number. And we've also got a fact article, this time by Mark Denitz, and it's on zombies. And then our main story of the night is by one of the greats in the field, Gene Wolfe. Well, let's jump right in. Let's have a story. Nick, Nick Mamatas, uh, can be a difficult guy. Long way back when I was hanging out in the HWA, the Horror Writers Association boards, and finding lots of things to take issue with, we, we had a few tiffs of a professional nature. The poetry stokers, Nick, remember? Hmm? Well, that's neither here nor there. Nick's a better-than-good writer, and I'm happy we have this little gem of his to kick off the evening. Imagine Damon Runyon getting drunk with Howard Lovecraft and getting their crafts all fused in a kind of apocalyptic, rapturous, day-after-doomsday yip-yap-yab-yum. Well, you'll see. Have a beer on Sunday with Nick Mamatas. The day after the rapture, Tommy goes looking for his bookie, Newsboy Shaw, but he isn't nowhere to be found. He ain't in the park, and he weren't loitering by the newsstand neither. And that's really a hangnail, because Tommy bet 318 on the numbers after he heard that the old 318 derailed and blew up in the ditch after her conductor got called home by Jesus. So did all the other boys in town. So if Tommy don't find newsboys soon, he's going to be left with but moths in his purse. I spy Tommy through the window and rap on the glass for him to come have a sip, and he turns and grins and comes on in and takes a seat next to Father Beef, who has been here all morning even though I caught him diddling my boy Roy but two years yesterday. Tommy ponies up to the bar and just gives me the hairy eyeball, tells I tell him it is okay, cause the blue laws got hoovered up to heaven with all the church mice, except Father Beef, the old baby effer. Beef just looks down into his little glass of slow gin fizz, and Tommy smiles and takes a pint. So, Beef is telling me in his little steam pipe merry voice, I placed three dollars on 479, but it didn't came up. Four seven nine is the school what's still burning, he says. I say I can still smell it, and that he better not think of schools anyway if he is all down here with the rest of us for the next seven years like he's saying he's to be. Tommy asks after my wife, and I tell him she's gone to Jesus, and that is why he gets beer on Sunday now instead of a frying pan to the bean, and we laughed, and then we all duck because someone is on the nut and trying to blast the sky with a Tommy gun, but the bullets just keep hitting us poor bastards. God damn, where are the John Law? I know they ain't been took up to heaven, those murdering bulls, Tommy says. And I says, yeah, but they might be cops doing all the shooting up, because they have no reason not to just shoot on any Mac who wanders by, we all being disgraceful sinners and all. Beef says this is hell on earth, and Tommy says it ain't, because he has a pint, and his mother-in-law gone missing too, and we all laugh at that. Put it on my tab, Tommy says, and I makes a face like the devil, but he just laughs and says, what am I to do? Call John Law, and I says I can brain him good with my ball bat. Tommy says I can trust him, because he won big on the numbers with old 318, 
while sticks like beef here was playing 479. I say that ain't the only thing beef was playing, and I get all mad again about my boy Roy, whose shorts been all bloody, but beef looks so sad like a woman or a white prune that I just can't be pounding him, and I starts to nearly cry. Tommy takes off his hat all solemn-like. You can't do to collect on the numbers now, Tom, Beef says, a little up on herself, like we've got to listen to his queeny ways. It won't do because that number been played out. The bookmaker skips out when the big numbers hit too much. All Newark plays either 318 or 479 yesterday, and even if half of them been taken by our Lord, ain't nobody will pay out. You bets on a broke bank you got broke. Tommy just shakes his head and says, No, no, not newsboy. He's honest aces, a real narrow arrow. He even pays when the rest of the books head for the hills. Right, McGinty? He looks at me and I says, Yes, sir, because it is true. Newsboy's an honest Abe, and that's how I founded this fine establishment. Because I picked 114 after the big 114 flophouse fired up, and he pays out to everybody, even if the other books make like a drum and beat it. He's honest then, Beef says. He's a real egghead now. But nobody else is, so what makes you think the money is any good? And Tommy ain't hep to it, because he is on the relief. But I does suddenly, because Banker Sprague is a regular Charlie Church mouse, and Heben took and lots of other mugs were too. The President also flew out of here, and the Supreme Court too, and if there ain't no government and banks, then the money in the till ain't worth what I was the day I am born. That's my acumen he's messed with now, and I just want to pound that old B.F. again, but I sees he's crying now, so I let him be. And Tommy says, how will he pay his tab? And I say, gold, and proves it by snatching up Father Beef's crucifix from right around his chicken neck. He says, but I gave you first communion. And I says, yeah, but I still got my communion money saved in a mason jar, but it ain't worth TP. Then Beef, he gets all up like he wants me to knock him down. But then the air turns red, and the frogs start falling like hail, thumping on the cars and windows outside, so we scram for the back room with our cocktails. And for a time we don't say nothing, because there ain't much to conversate about, other than the smell and the howling and the devils in the shadows, and how we got seven years of this hell on earth till we get to hell on hell on a shingle herself. This is Babylon, sons, Beef says to Tommy after a think, and penny any players like you can't be no crook in a world of crooks. God ain't had to do nothing but leave us all here to wait for our depraved natures to take us down. There ain't never will be no more handshake deals, no more cross your heart and hope to die. And ain't no more swears on your mother's grave, because she's leaving it presently to be with Jesus and Mary neither. And Beef opens up to say something more, but then he just starts sobbing all over again, and Tommy looks at me and he shrugs. You see Newsboy McGinty? he asks me, and I says no, because Newboy is a teetotaler, so he never has no business in here anyhow, unless it's cards, and it ain't been cards on Sunday yet. Tommy looks over to the cards table and sees all the drapes that got left behind when the game was broke up yesterday by the clouds and the sunbeam and the angel choir taking two of the boys home, and Tommy runs over and starts going through the pockets, but I already hooverized it all. Oh, man alive, what if Newsboy got him a call to the Lord, Tommy says, and he looks at Beef, because Beef knows the good word, even if he didn't follow it which is why he's here drinking on Sunday, and why my sweet Roy is just listening at the radio all day, but Beef shakes his head. Newsboy Shaw is a cutthroat, a footpad, and a gambler, and he didn't even marry his girl but for the judge, not before God. He must be here. Or if he ain't, then he's playing cards with old Scratch if he got plugged this very morning, 
Beef says. After all, if I did not get called home, he starts, but then he stops, for I was looking at him. What do you know anyway, I ask him. Not a goddamn thing, I tell him. Well, goddamn it all to hell, Tommy says, and he walks back to holding up the wall. My ship's all come in and the dock's been rooked. And then he tells me he wants to have my wheelbarrow, to be collecting all the clothes, and maybe he can sell them for his nut. And I say he can, but that's just fool, because there's lots more clothes than people now. Damn this pious little burg. Supply and demand is what I know from better than newsboy Shaw does. Nobody won't be buying nothing they can find on the streets free as frogs. And then Tommy's beard turns to blood, and he throws it up, and it's all full of worms and little white maggots, and I say this is getting out of hands here, and Beef says it is because beer on Sunday is still a sin, and the Lord don't need to test us no more because he got us right where he wants him. I has enough, and clocks the little baby effer finally, and he falls right over. I tell Tommy I'll go up and get him another beer, and most of it is all wormy too, but for the Guinness, because the Lord is merciful, so I pull one for Tommy, but spills it when I see them all at my windows clawing and scratching. White boys like they was drowned, staring to get in. Them eyes red as stoplights, but squinty, too. Then they bust through my window and start coming for me, and I wave Beef's cross, but it don't do no good, and I call for Tommy, and he comes out, and they dogpile on him. I gets my ball bat from the bar and start cracking at them all. It's like smacking mud ball after mud ball, except white and smelly like the pier in summer. Old Tommy manages to get a chair and breaks it over the little bastards. He's a tall drink of water, so he's wading through them, and I see they've been the kids from the TV ward, but the ones that died all on the last year or so, and I hoist many a stein in their honor with their old dads, but they don't care, and I bats them down good till they're all down for the count. And Father Beef, his head a lump, comes out, maybe because he can smell little boy, and starts crying, and he says he'd have killed himself already, but this ain't nothing compared to the hell that awaits, and I look around my establishment and tend to agree. Then I remember the Guinness, and pull another round for my poor old boys, and give them the guns I took off the chairs, when sweet Jesus took away the Sarge and his cardnight boys. Beef ain't never used a gun, but I can tell he used a beer, as he drinks it right down and then taps on the glass like a queen for another, but I pull him one anyway, in case he can make his cross work better than yours truly could have, in account I ain't even been in church since Roy was six and Beef did him. Roy's eight now, like the boys splattering up my tables. But he's a good boy. He's just stuck down here with the rest of us on account of Father Beef. But I pour him a beer anyhow. And Tommy says I should hire him as a bull, so as to keep the devil's riffraff out. And I could pay him in Guinness if I can keep the supply up. And I start to give it a think about what I can trade for more of the stuff, if the root is even still up after yesterday. Old William the Teamster was a pious sort after all, he may be gone to heaven and have a new route up there after all, but Beef says that if the one true draft is still good, then the Lord is still merciful, and I tells Tommy I'll think about it. Then we hear the glass outside crunching all quiet-like. Tommy waves me back, and he gets to crouching down behind an overturned table, and he has his little heater out. Father Beef just backs up with his mug, and Tommy's too, and is sipping from them round robin, one from his one two from Tommy's, and he's practically in the back room again, but still looking. I got one hand on my pistol and the other on my bat, and we hear the glassy walking getting a little louder, and a long wheeze like a kid with the cough, and I starts to feel my courage leak out of me, I'm ashamed to say. 
But not for me, see, but for poor old Roy. I bet the radio will stop working soon, and he's going to cry for his mama again. But there won't be no mama, or no pa, and nobody to help him in this lonely world. And that just gets me riled up, and I swear I'm set to shoot the devil himself if he darkened my door. But it wasn't the devil. It was Knucklebone Shaw, Newsboy's no-account brother. He's Newsboy's muscle, but it's all in his head, see? I just laugh at him then, because Knucklebone doffs his hat like he's courting us, and steps on a frog and just keeps coming in. Hello, McGinty, he says to me, but slow, slow being the way he is. He don't come up to a stool, but just looks around at the whitewashed dead boys we broke, and says to me if I've seen Tommy, and I nod over, and Tommy stands up with his piece still out, but pointed right at Knucklebones's head, which is only aiming to improve Knucklebones's noggin anyhow. But Knucklebone just strides up like the gun was licorice or something. He puts his cap back on and pulls out a kerchief from his pocket, and unwraps it, and I see a little red notebook and some shiny pebbles, and Knucklebone reads, Tom Reed, five dollars on three eighteen for today, like he was asking. And Tommy puts down his piece and takes out his ticket, and Knucklebone reads the ticket real slow, like three eighteen is some big sum, and then nods and hands over Tommy the kerchief, and he walks out with the ticket in both of his big ham hands, like it is his fortune on there. And Tommy looks at the kerchief and laughs out loud, real, real loud. And Beef swishes up to him and asks, What is it, son? And I look over, too, because I can use a laugh. And Tommy says, Look, and puts out his hand, and I do. And it is gold. Gold fillings, right from the jaw of newsboy Shaw, who's been such the honest bookmaker that he got called home and left ain't nothing but he was born with behind, like golden fillings enough to pay off his debt to old Tommy. And we're all laughing at this, and then old Jack comes in with Newsboy's shiny watch, what Knucklebone gave him, and then here comes Trudy with a pretty swank set of golden cuffs also from Knucklebone, who got himself left behind because of Father Beef, the baby effer, I guess, and I pull them all drafts because it is still Sunday, and God is still merciful, and beer is but our sacrament. And thanks for that, Ray Sizemore. Nick Mamatas is the author of the Lovecraftian beat road novel, Move Underground, nominated for both the Bram Stoker and International Horror Guild Awards. In 2009, Nick co-edited Haunted Legends, uh, an anthology he did with the woman herself, Ellen Datlow. Uh, this was a gathering of tales inspired by legends, and at the 2010 World Fantasy Convention in Columbus, Ohio, I was very happy to spend a twilit couple of hours in a suite at the hotel while Nick, Ellen, and a half a dozen or so of the authors from Haunted Legends read their stories. It was Gary Brunbeck, Jeffrey Ford. Great fun. And it won that year's Stoker. Hope we can get some more from you, Nick. And nice work, Ray. Ray Sizemore is a tavern manager, karaoke host, actor, and for the past few years, a professional voiceover artist. He lives in Norwalk, Ohio, and in addition to doing narration for the Starship Sofa, Escape Pod, and Drabblecast, Ray has voiced commercials, documentaries, video games. You'll be back, Ray, yes? Anyway, stop by his site. Have a listen. Poetry 
We've got a poem tonight by Dennis M. Lane. It's called Primetime Apocalypse, and it is performed by Dennis Lane himself. God will destroy the homosexual community of America. God will tolerate. He will not tolerate anything else. Primetime Apocalypse. Written by and read by Dennis M. Lane. Hanging from the cross, battered, torn, naked, multitudes baying for blood. Dark skies crisscrossed by invisible streams of data. Holmes received the message. The false prophet will die tonight. Popcorn buttered fingers roam channels to find the best angle. A close-up of agony. The cowled man approaches, crowd roaring as they wave paint-splattered signs. I, heart reaver, go, go, go. The woman mumbles as microphones point. Forgive them, father. They know not what they do. But forgiveness is all sold out. Reaver's knife flashes, blood sprays. The world holds its breath. Icor flows down pale skin in glorious technicolor. Furtive tongues lick lips. Cameras zoom. The woman's chest shudders, head falling limply on her neck. Her chest stops moving. The world sighs and breathes again. Glistening faces reflect on TV screens. The skies royal and darkness thickens. Red eyes stare dispassionately from clouds. TV screens blank as the screaming starts. And thank you, Dennis. And thank you, Dennis. Bangs and whimpers and forgiveness is all sold out. So, so let's get out of this mood for a bit. Let's tune to something a little more endearing. Let's, let's think about zombies. Spanish zombies. Remember a few weeks ago, Mark Denitz led a discussion of the recent spate of handheld movies. Blair Witch Project, Cloverfield. Tonight... Mark continues in that tradition and takes a look at the Spanish zombie digital invasion. Uh, the movies in question will be Wreck and Wreck 2. Here's Mark with Zombies. Zombies, the Spanish digital invasion. In the second installment of my mini camcorder series, I want to focus on the Spanish horror film industry's inclusion in this area, more significantly the two rec films. Spain has, over the last decade, released some dark and nasty, but also tragic films, the superb The Devil's Backbone, The Orphanage, arguably with its idea stolen from the French House of Voices, H6, Fragile, etc., and of course, Wreck from 2007. 
Such a powerful film that the US film industry remade it shot for shot a year later with the title Quarantine. Wreck is a film which just oozes excellence in filmmaking above all else. For to be honest, Wreck's strength isn't so much in its plot, but in the way it deals with the situational horror film. The characters trapped in an apartment block, wondering when, not if, the results of the virus within will affect them. Wreck begins with a documentary team preparing to travel with the team from the Barcelona Fire Department for the evening, as part of its While You Sleep series. We get the initial introduction with the team and the firemen they are accompanying before we make our way to an apartment block where something rather strange is happening. As with any story, the opening few minutes with the firemen should be key to building up the rapport between the protagonists, in this case the reporters, and the firemen they will follow. However, in Wreck, I felt that this introduction to the characters was completely unnecessary, as within the first ten minutes of the film, the firemen ignore the reporters, and when they are threatened by the police in the apartment block, the firemen look on with disinterest. We are aware early on that the film's main focus lies in the apartment building, even before the physical and symbolic sheet that begins to be draped over it. We are introduced to several characters quickly, as we are informed by them and the police that a neighbour has been making a ruckus and is just now shouting and screaming in her apartment, refusing to let the authorities in. There is some discussion between the police, the firemen and the reporters about how best to deal with the situation, although in truth this is more of a discussion between the authorities and how best to keep the reporters out of the way. Once in the apartment, they notice the resident standing in the corner of her living room. The reporters are ordered to turn the camera off, but merely turn off the light, so we get a restrictive view of the interaction between the woman and the authorities, until Pablo, our cameraman, turns on the light, and we see a split second of clarity, an elderly woman in a nightdress immersed in blood. Even the reporter Angela at this point tells him to turn the light off, and our view is once again hindered. A few seconds of attempted dialogue with the elderly resident ensue before she inexplicably attacks one of the policemen and is caught on film ripping out half his throat with her teeth. There is a moment of panic as the team try and release the policeman before carrying him downstairs to be taken care of by another of the residents who just so happens to be an intern at the hospital, always there when you need them. It's here that we find out the apartment block has been sealed off and there is no way out for our crew. When attempting to find another way out at the back of the building, the other fireman who remained upstairs crashes to the floor with a large chunk of his cheek ripped off, we suspect by the same resident. This sets off panic and fear, none of which is helped by the fact that the policeman has no idea what is going on and that they hear a report from outside that the building is now under BNC jurisdiction, which means it is seen as a biological, nuclear or chemical threat. And so the film develops, with us finding out little by little that there has been some virus contracted in the apartment, starting with one of the family's dogs, which has been put down at the vets and is now spreading itself throughout the apartment block. The tension ups by degrees and there is further intrigue when we find out that all is not as it seems when we are directed to the top floor. Of the two films I discussed in my first review of the trilogy, Wreck has much more in common with The Blair Witch Project than Cloverfield, as it is a minimalist film, sparse on both location and characters, and also has a female lead. It's interesting that Wreck has been criticised for rehashing an age technique, as though this type of filming was actually a fad, and not a fully established method of filmmaking and storytelling. 
The Blair Witch Project paved the way and also was the catalyst for workable cam films, but that doesn't mean that other films can't come along and play with the techniques in the same way. Rec works well because it is a TV cameraman who films the events, and this makes more sense. But he's determined to continue the film when asked not to, and when a normal person might not. The film is generally well focused, as you'd expect from a cameraman, but also suffers from the expected problems of running up and down stairs and fending off attacks from those wishing to turn off the camera, and those also wishing to turn out the protagonist's lights. There is definite homage to other films going on here, and like The Blair Witch Project, the makers of the Wreck films are well versed in the horror traditions. We see reminders of Evil Dead and The Shining in Wreck, and all manner of gems in Wreck too. One other thing that the Wreck films do is make plenty of reference to the influence of the game industry within horror, and almost make their own Wreck game with over-the-shoulder action and first-person shooter camera techniques. It was so in the past that several films became games, and now it is almost as common that games become films, Resident Evil, Silent Hill. Wreck takes this one step further and becomes a game within a film. Wreck is very vague in its build-up, taking nearly an hour to confirm that we are in fact watching something that can be classed as a zombie film, when Jennifer's mother, the owner of the dog, is attacked by the policeman while she is tied up. The film then becomes all out panic, with all the residents showing signs of infection and the remaining firemen and Pablo and Angela running around trying to avoid the infected and also trying to find out what has happened to the owner of the building. And then there are two. As Manu, the last of the firemen, is affected and we are left with Pablo and Angela who finally make their way to the penthouse. They find no light and so we only hear their discussion until Pablo gets the lamp on the camera working again. It's now that we get a sense that there is much more going on as we find ourselves in what looks like a laboratory of sorts before seeing clippings pasting a wall all about a girl in Portugal who was suspected as being possessed. To give us some extra mystery, the room is also littered with religious symbols and paintings suggesting this might be of a supernatural nature rather than chemical. Angela is determined to find a link between the events in the apartment building with the room itself and goes through pictures, articles, journals and a tape recorder. Here we find out that they have kept a girl here and that she was supposed to be killed. Shortly after this an attic door opens and Pablo's camera focuses on a child just before the camera's light is broken. We are then forced to switch to a nightlight focusing on Angela's face and see everything in this way. Angela is completely in the dark at this stage and we are like her, relying on Pablo as our eyes. The way these last few minutes are filmed is excellent, as we are forced to hear the film without seeing too much, merely knowing that Pablo is not getting out. We see the camera fall and are forced to watch Angela's panic. It is then Angela takes the camera and sees what it is she's up there with, and wishes she hadn't. We have to tape everything Pablo, for fuck's sake. And they did, leading us directly into Wreck 2, as the quote I just mentioned is not only the closing of the first film, but the opening for the second, and the most noticeable difference between the two is the fact that instead of a single cameraman we have a SWAT team, with head cams giving us different points of view and again, playing with the concept of film becoming game becoming film. The idea with Wreck 2 is to give us more of the story of the climax of the first film without losing the feelings of anticipation, horror and making sure we don't leave the edge of our seats. 
with the multiple camera situation, we are now playing homage to another of cinema's classics, that of the Alien series, meaning we are moving out of horror as a specific and into genre as a broader term. It was hinted at in the first film, but within the first 20 minutes we have it confirmed that the virus is actually demonic possession, and the Ministry of Health officer is revealed as a priest when one of the four SWAT members is infected by one of the residents. Upon finding a hidden corridor with evidence of experiments on children, Lara, one of the SWAT team, goes crazy. After being attacked by one of the children popping out of the roof, the SWAT team blast out the roof and discover the remains of the priest who carried out the experiments on the children. They are attacked again and the SWAT team here refuse to harm the child, leaving the priest to take a shotgun and blow the possessed's head off. We then return to another old classic alien, as we have Lara in a ceiling air shaft hunting down the blood of the first of the possessed, leading to three of the child demons almost catching him on the corridor. Once the blood is tested to make sure that it is in fact Medeiros blood, the original girl, there is an accident and the whole test tube is destroyed, leading the priest to announce that they have to start their search again. It is here that the extra complication comes in, which is kids with a camera. On top of that we have a whole possessed horde advancing from both above and below, and it pretty much looks like the film should be ending here. But we're only getting started. And we're back to the old woman, who we first went to in the first film, and it is here that Lara realises he has no way out. Misreading his boss's suggestion of you still have the pistol, Lara blows his brains out, prompting the SWAT team to once again make the attempt to get out. They then get hold of Jennifer, or what was Jennifer, and thus begins an interrogation between priest and demon. We lose another camera due to a lens issue, and are forced over to the kids' camera, the kids, who as yet, we have only seen on the stairwell in the apartment block and on one of the corridors. And here we move back to the film's opening and are effectively given different timelines as well as different protagonists. They meet a fireman and Jennifer's father who have also broken into the building and this builds up some more tension from the other angle. I'm not so sure this element was really needed and unfortunately the film drops a notch as we are back to our suspension of disbelief as we now have kids who are just as adept at keeping hold of cameras in extremely stressful situations as professional cameramen. I would have preferred this section of the film not to have been here and it's not as though it was really needed. It's also unbelievable that they would hide from the SWAT team once they were discovered as even they realised they were their only hope. After killing both one of the demonic SWAT team and the firemen they were with, the kids are rescued by the remaining SWAT team and the priest. One of the kids appears to have been bitten and they attempt to lock him up. As the camera battery dies, we receive another camera, this time from Angela. Yes, Angela is back. Our heroine, who was dragged away at the end of the first film, returns to the crew and they begin to use Pablo's camera through to the film's finale. We are told by one of the possessed, after another priest-demon interrogation, that the only way to see the girl Medeiros is to look through the camera's night vision. Behind a hidden door, we are shown another section of rooms similar to those earlier in the penthouse, and then we meet Medeiros again. The camera is knocked, and we hear screaming and shouting for a few moments before our cameraman gets hold of the camera again. Just as in the first film, this whole sequence of Medeiros searching for the protagonists as they attempt to be quiet is excellent. Angela kills Medeiros, but Owen refuses to give the order to have them released, as he will not leave until the mission is completed and he has a sample of her blood. 
Angela then kills the cameraman, thus revealing herself as the new host of Madeiras' demon. It was not the biggest shock of the film, as any self-respecting horror viewer must have been asking them. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash acast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. How she managed to survive when we saw her physically dragged away by Madeiras. Whilst Rick 2 doesn't have the impact of the first film, it was commendable that they tried to work more with the story that was hinted at in the first film, while still maintaining the same atmosphere. It leads one to wonder how the third and eventually fourth instalment in the series are going to weigh up to these two. The third will be released this year, three years after the second film. The Rec films are testament to the quality that can be made using these cheaper, more basic film models, as even though there are countless examples of camcorder productions that have failed miserably, there are also the standard bearers. The Blair Witch Project paved the way for innovative camcorder features, and as long as those making them remember that this is another method in which to tell an engaging story, then I can't really see any limit to what films of this ilk can achieve. Basically, the success of the makers of the Blair Witch Project and the Wreck films is that they know their genre. It's a genre they love and respect, and this comes out through the camera. Both honour the different kinds of tradition of horror film, as the Blair Witch Project works on the suspense element of there is something there or isn't there, and Wreck fully subscribed to that there is something nasty and brutal, and it's coming for you. I much prefer the former kind of film, but can also enjoy a well-made film of the latter too. I think one thing that Wreck and the Blair Witch Project do have in common, though, is the feeling of disappointment when they have finished that you will not be able to see the film for the, f- for the first time again. Even though they are well worth seeing more than once, the first is the kick, the one that grabs you by the throat and pulls you in. In the third of my camcorder film trilogy, I'll be examining the camcorder that is a fixed camera phenomenon, also known as the Paranormal Activity Trilogy. Well, thank you, Mark. Interesting. More, please. More, more. Again, 
Look for Mark online at Mark Denitz, that's M-A-R-K-D-E-N-I-Z, dot blogspot dot com. And as Dennis says, zombies, they creep me out, man. Yeah, I've never been a fan of the shuffling dead. I've written one zombie tale, and that by request. It's called Wind Shadows. You can get a copy. It's in my collection, Drink for the Thirst to Come. Just out this past December. It's on Amazon. And now on Kindle. I won't say that without Gene Wolfe, there's no tales to terrify. I will say that without Gene Wolfe, there would not be Larry Santoro on Tales to Terrify. You see, it was, uh, it was through Gene's generosity that I met up, so to speak, with Tony C. Smith at the Starship Sofa. I won't tell a long tale, but it's it's an important one. It's important for me anyway. I met Gene Wolfe for the first time when I was working at Alice Bentley's The Stars Our Destination bookstore, and God, how I miss it. Not the work so much, but the store was was a wonder. So many people passed through there over the years. Ray Bradbury, uh, Gene, of course, dozens of others. Uh, Gene was one of a group of writers who came into the store for a signing. Uh, among the others were Yvonne Navarro, Wayne Allen Sally, Jody Lynn Nye, Phyllis Eisenstein, uh, most of whom are local people, Chicagoans, uh, Chicagoans and Burbians anyway. All of them first-rate writers. Now, at this time, I had probably not written anything in fictive passion for, well, probably more than a decade I was simply there to sell books, brew the coffee, put out the cookies. I, I had just read one of Gene's books, uh, prepping myself, I guess, for the big day. And at one point in the afternoon, I found myself uh, standing next to him. I was probably adding to the cheese bowl. And there was a lull in his conversation with a group around him. And I mentioned I'd just finished whatever book it was that I had read and said I really enjoyed it. He turned looked at me, waiting for more, then said, Yes? I think I said, Um, what did you like about it? He asked, still looking. Well, I said, and thereby a lesson was learned, a lesson I'd not learned in all my years of being alive and bumping into the world. The lesson was, keep your mouth shut, especially if you've nothing deeper to say than, mm, or, well, just to make your presence known. <laughs> well, mm. here's Gene Wolfe's Innocent. It's read to us by Scott Couchman. You promise not to throw that stuff on me again, Father? Really promise? Okay. It burns, but if you promise, you can come on in. What I wanted to tell you last time was that I didn't do anything they say. None of it is true. One of the cops said I was the kind who hang around schoolyards, so that part's true. I did. Sit down on the other bunk, and I'll explain. It isn't that I want to make love with little girls like they say. I never, ever wanted that. I will tell you the truth, and if you want me to swear on that prayer book, I'll do it. 
I have never wanted sex with anybody I've ever seen. Not little girls or boys either. And not women, or not very much. Not with men. Just thinking about it makes me sick. I was sick a lot when I was a kid. I had a delicate stomach, is what the doctor and everybody said. Everything I ate made me sick. It tasted awful, too. There was this nice girl next door. Her name was Nancy. She felt sorry for me, so she gave me a little piece of her chocolate bar one time. She said how good it was and how much I'd like it. Well, I wanted to make her happy, so I made myself eat it. It smelled horrible and tasted the same way, and you know what chocolate looks like. But I got it down just the same and told her how good it was. I was still puking that night a long time after Bradley went to bed. Him? Oh, he was my foster father back then. I grew up in foster homes. There were three or four, maybe five, because nobody really wanted me ever. And I guess I ought to have told you. No, I, I never knew my real mom, or my dad either. Some some garbage man found me in a trash can. <laughs> Sorry my laugh bothers you, Father, but I can't help laughing every time I think about it. It's just so funny. I've seen the old TV news. The library helped me look them up. They're nice like that. No, not even that old. I was premature, and my mother just threw me away, whoever she was. They never did find her. Only a policeman, this was another policeman, an old guy, told me one time they thought it was this one girl who'd hung herself a couple of days before they found me. That's what they thought because her body looked like she'd just had a kid. Only the doctor said I couldn't have lived that long without being fed and kept warm. Only I'm never cold. Are you, father? How does it feel? I've picked up pieces of ice and even put them in my shirt in the winter. It doesn't bother me. You know what does, father? Wearing a shirt. Wearing anything. Can I take mine off? Thanks. Yes, I'm hairy. I, I suppose that helps. Oh, yes, I hate hot weather. You know what I really like? I like winter nights. Those cold, clear nights when the stars shine and shine and there's frost everywhere. Or snow. Snow is good. That's when I pray. Sure, I believe in God, Father. For me, God is the moon. Wait, I know all that. He's not really the moon, and it's just a sort of island up in the sky. People have been up there. You know that crucifix you're holding up is just wood and metal? But it means God to you. That's how the moon is to me. God hung the moon, and since I can't see him, I pray to him there. Sure, ask me anything you want. What do you want to ask me about? Here? In jail? Well, to tell you the truth, I don't eat anything much, which I guess is why they told you I was on a hunger strike. No way, I am not. Give me something that won't make me sick and just watch me eat. Only the food here is like what they had in the cafeteria at school. It's just garbage. Some of it might have been good meat when they got it, but they ruin it on purpose. So what I would do back then was go to a little cafe I knew about where they'd bring me what I asked for. It was pretty bad, sure, but I could eat it and not puke it up. That way I did not starve. 
when I was older and had more money, I would just buy meat at the butchers and eat it. Sometimes I was so hungry I would open the package there in the store. He didn't like it, but I was a good customer. Later I used to snack on the job. You get a nibble here and a nibble there, and if you keep it up all day, it's enough. Do you want to hear about this, Father? About what I really like? Okay, let me tell you how I found out. I was down at this one dump with this guy, Paul. We were climbing over the junk looking for something we might like and looking for rats, too. We looked for the rats because they would bite you if you didn't see them first. We had sticks, and we would whack rats with them any time we could. Mostly we missed. You probably know how that is. They run fast, and they're always getting under something. Paul got a rat, a big one. He knocked it over toward me, knocked it off its feet, you know, and I whacked it with my stick, too. After that, Paul killed it, or thought he had. He whacked it two or three times, and it lay there like it was dead. Then he picked it up, and it bit him. I should not be telling you all this, Father. Bending your ear like this is what I mean. I know you don't care about all this. The thing is, I'm just so lonesome. Hungry and lonesome, like a lost dog. I know it seems pretty funny for me to be lonesome in a place as noisy as this, with doors slamming and people yelling all the time, but I've got nobody to talk to, no visitors either. No, I'm not in solitary, Father, or I'm not supposed to be. Who told you that? Well, I'm not. It's all a big lie. They would have told me, wouldn't they? Besides, I haven't done anything, really. I mean, since I have been in here. If you get put in solitary, it is just about always because you hit one of the screws. I have never done that, or bit one either. You want to know the worst thing I've ever done in here? They won't let me go out to where the others eat. They just pass my tray in with their stinking garbage on it. So a couple of times I have thrown all their garbage on the floor and walked on it. Why? I just wanted to show them what I thought of it, that's all. Besides, I wanted them to have to talk to me, which they did and brought me a bucket and a mop and made me clean it up. It gave me something to do. Two of them tried to twist my arms the first time and it scared them. <laughs> that was the most fun I've had since I got stuck in here. Oh, I'm strong, real strong. Take my hand, Father, and I'll show you. All right, but I would not have hurt you bad. I had this cellmate. His name was Paul, only I don't remember his last name. Really, I have had eight or maybe ten. Can I tell you what they do here, how they use me? Well, suppose they want to put somebody in solitary, but they know he has this good lawyer. He's got money, right? So if they do... That lawyer will go to a judge and try to get him out. Well, what they do is they put him in here with me. In a couple of days, he'll be begging them for solitary. Oh, yeah. I, I guess I think of all these guys as Paul, because Paul was the first. The kid, the rat bit. He was bleeding pretty good, and naturally it made me hungry. So I said, don't you know rats are poison? I gotta suck out the poison or you'll die. He let me. I got it in my mouth, and it was the best thing I ever tasted. 
Man, it was so good. So I kept drinking and drinking until Paul said, You never spit the poison out. I said, Yes, I did. That was a mistake, because he knew I hadn't. He got mad and jerked his hand away, and I bit his neck. That was where I started learning about meat, right there in the dump. Meat doesn't really go bad as fast as people think. It depends on a lot of things, like can the sun hit it? I didn't know that then, but I knew that if I left my meat there in the dump, the rats would get at it, and it would be no use coming back for some the next time I got hungry. Well, Father, there was this old factory near there where nobody worked anymore. It was supposed to be locked up. Only Paul and me found a way to get inside. We thought there would be a lot of rats in there, but there wasn't because there was nothing in there for them to eat. So I went in there, and the basement seemed like the best place. It was dark down there, and nobody would see my meat unless he went poking around down in that basement with a flashlight. So I left it down there and went home. The next day I came back and there were rats, so I got some rope and hung it up where they couldn't get to it. It was dark and cool down there, so I felt like that would be a friendly place for me. It was, too. My meat lasted down there until I had eaten just about everything. I'd come back every day, maybe every two days, or twice a day sometimes. No, they thought he'd run away. The police do that a lot. Say he has run away, because then they don't have to look. What you really need is a good freezer. But if you don't have one, there is still a lot you can do. You can rent a locker, too. That is what I did for a while. I knew how a butcher would wrap meat, the paper they use and the tape. I got a guy at work to tell me. So I got some. And when I had meat, I would cut it up and wrap it neat and everything. Then I would take it to my locker, and people would think I had paid for a side or killed a deer or something. But like I said, I still had a lot to learn about meat. Old people are not good. Did you know that? They are not. Younger is better until you get down to about ten, Father. After that, younger is just smaller. You take this old guy, Paul, or Bradley, or whatever his name was, he was my foster father for a while, and I never did like him because he was generally mad about something, and I swear, Father, I could taste his pipe tobacco. I got some ketchup from the supermarket, just taking it, you know, because I didn't have much money then. I put that on the meat because it was a pretty color, and I thought it would cover up the taste. It didn't, and he was the only one I ever put anything like that on. Sure. All of it, because I didn't want to waste him. Well, they put me in a different foster home after that, because with him gone, the lady had to go to work. Only, I remembered the old place and came back for this one girl. She was really, really sweet. It started me wising up. Younger was better, and girls were better than boys. They are not so tough, they don't have that boy taste, and the fat runs all through Everything. That's the good way. No, I have never felt sorry about it the way you mean, but I kind of missed a few of the people afterward. Then, too, when it was somebody that I knew, the police would come around sometimes and say, When did you see her? Was there any reason for her to run away? All that stuff. 
It always made me kind of nervous because I knew they would never understand. So it was better if it was somebody I did not know at all. Of course, that was the trouble with Paul, the guy who used to sleep in that bunk. He was locked in with me, so they'd know right off. Besides, I'd only get one meal off him before they took the meat away. Yeah. Sometimes I would get up when the moon was coming in through the window. I would stand beside his bunk and just look at him. How would this part taste? How would that part taste? Would it be better to boil the hands and feet? I knew I couldn't do it, but it was fun to think about, just the same. Some nights I would think, yes. Some nights, no. Just eat the fingers, chewing up the bones. Only some nights he'd wake up and get mad about me being there, and then I'd have to shut his mouth for him. No, it's not so bad being alone. I walk up and down the cell, three steps this way and three steps that way. It drives them crazy. Then at night, I yell out the window and listen. Nobody's ever yelled back, but if somebody ever does, I'll get out. I don't know how, but I will. You watch. Oh, sure. I know all about those psychologists. They bring one in because they want to get rid of me. Only I do not want to get sent where I will be with crazy people all the time. So I smile and answer all the questions right. What day is it and why am I in here and all that. It's all the same and by now I know it better than they do. No, I don't ever hear voices, Doc. Only sometimes I wish I did. Well, Doc, I'm me. I give them my name and tell them about foster homes and going to vocational school and all that. Only not about Paul or Nancy either. After that, I explain how I am innocent and it is all a big mistake anyway. By the time I finished with them, I know they will say dull normal when they get out. Well, I am not a child molester, no matter what the screws say. All right, I guess I am a murderer, maybe. That part is probably right. Only not a child molester. No way. Sure, I went to school. My middle school grades were not so good, so I went to Brachola Vocational. They had meat cutting. It was really big there, and it was what I took. The teacher said I was a natural, and I'll tell you, Father, if my old teachers at the middle school had seen my grades, they would not have believed them. I got out pretty close to the top of my class. Only, I used to see this one little girl. You know where Bertrola is, Father? Well, it's right next to Glacier Elementary School. So when we went out to play softball or anything, I would see the little kids playing there on the other side of the fence. If my team was at bat, I'd have plenty of time to look at them. There was this one girl, pretty and filled out nice without being too fat. You know what I mean? She looked tender, but she looked solid, too. I kept thinking how nice it would be to follow her home. Not close, you know, but just keeping an eye on her, seeing where she lived and all that. She'd be heavy, but not so heavy that I'd have trouble moving her around. I could even pack her in this one duffel bag I had. That's how I thought while I was still at Brachola. Only, I never did get to follow her because she got out of school before I did. So I thought, probably she rides the school bus anyhow, and what good is that? She was so pretty. You should have seen her father, those wide eyes and that beautiful, innocent little face. 
You would have wanted her just like I did. How old? Oh, I don't know for sure. Eight, maybe. Or she could have been seven. But so beautiful. And not big, but solid. Father, I thought she could never be mine unless I could figure out some way to find out where she lived. Only I didn't want to ask any of the other kids about her. You understand what I mean. They would have remembered later. So I just watched her and thought, someday I'll get one just like that. You never know, Father. God arranges this stuff. It's not us, and it sure wasn't me. I got out of school, like I said, and I got a job at the packing plant. I joined the International Brotherhood of Meat Workers and everything. This teacher I had recommended me, and any time he recommended a guy, the human resources guy at the plant jumped at him. Everybody told me that, and when I applied and gave him my letter, I found out it was true. It said I was good-natured, hard-working, and reliable. On the next page, it said I had a natural aptitude few students possess. And that was the big finish, you know? I still remember it, and I'll bless Mr. Johnson till the end of my days. I was walking back home from work one day, and there she was. I guess she'd been kept after school for being naughty or... Maybe there'd been some kind of special thing at her school after class. Practice for a school show, maybe. Something like that. Anyway, there she was, and I followed her. It was broad daylight, so I wasn't planning to do anything at all. That day, I just wanted to find out where she lived. I had this little apartment by then, and a nice new freezer. So I followed her, and this car came along. The guy stopped and said her mama had sent him to get her and take her home. Sure, I could hear him, father. You'd be surprised how good my ears are. It's funny because I have a lot of color blindness. I know because they tested me at Bracciolo Vocational. So you would think my ears might be bad, too. Only they are a lot better than most people's. Well, I heard him, like I said, and I knew right off that he was lying. He was going to steal her, and he was real scared somebody would know it. I could hear it in his voice, but she could not. She got into the car with him, but I had the smell of him by then, and I had seen the car and the license number. I wrote it down as soon as they had gone, so I would not forget it. No, father, I have never owned a car. I never got that much money together before they put me in here. If I had owned a car, I would have driven it to work, probably, and I would never have seen him stealing her. So I borrowed somebody else's, just pulled him out when he was getting in and took his keys. Only I never meant to keep his car, which would be stealing. I was going to leave it someplace where he would find it. I looked for an hour, maybe, before I found them. They were in a trailer park where one of the guys I worked with lived. So I got out and knocked on the door of the trailer. He opened it, and when he saw how mad I was, he just ran away out the back door, and I let him go. Well, Father, maybe most of them don't have back doors, but this one did. She was there on the floor crying. He had tied her hands, and there was a rope around her neck that was tied to the bed, so she couldn't get away. Besides, he had torn off all her clothes, and she was bleeding from down here. Sure I did. You would have too, Father. It tasted great. So I said, don't cry, please don't cry. He's gone now and you don't have to worry about him anymore. Now you listen to me. I am going to leave you here until dark. It won't be long. When it is dark, nobody will see that you are naked so that I can get you into my car and it will be all right. No, father, I wasn't going to hurt her at all. 
So then I drove out to that factory where I'd kept Paul. I had my paper and tape there, and a cleaver and some knives. You know. After that, I went back home and put some in my freezer. By then it was dark, so I came back for her, just like I said. She was so sweet. She had finished crying by then, and the way she looked up at me. If you had seen her little face then, Father, you would know I would never hurt her. I untied her and got her into my car. Only the police stopped us, and here I am. So I am not a child molester like they said. Not at all. He was the one that did her like they were married. Only nobody could marry a girl as little as she was then. Maybe ten. Not much older. She'll be older now, I know that. But if you'll find her and talk to her, she'll tell you I never did. It was him. I just licked her where she was bleeding, you know. That was all I did. Well, tell her to tell the truth, please. She won't lie to you, I know. And tell her I will get out someday, and when I do, I am going to look her up and make sure she's all right. I didn't mean to scare you, Father. Really, I didn't. I just laid my hand on your shoulder. You shouldn't be so touchy. Just tell the screw you want out. Thank you, Gene, and thank you, Scott. This story reminds me of another of Gene's stories. Uh, it's called The Vampire's Kiss. I narrated it for the Starship Sofa way back in the olden days. I think it was somewhere around episode 40. A first-person narration in which horrific things are disclosed, all in innocence, with a twist at the end, a twist that's not about clever plotting. It's just a sharp understanding of how human monsters can be. The thought gives you shivers. Hmm? Well, Gene does that to you. Somehow there's always that moment after you've read one of his stories and you've thought about it for a while, then suddenly it just clicks. It's a good story by a great writer. I, I mean a great writer. Let me stop for just a moment and consider. I'm, I'm lucky. I, I live in the same town as Gene and quite a few other good writers, but I got to know him a few years after my Stars Are Destination days. I was just beginning again to write again. I'd been nominated for one stoker and was relatively impressed with myself, and Gene was an infrequent but pretty consistent guest at our writers' group, Twilight Tales. By then, I think I'd gotten over my fear of him. I, I was asked to adapt one of his stories for a presentation at an upcoming world horror convention. I chose The Tree is My Hat. And throughout the course of the project, Gene was very supportive, very helpful. And when the presentation was done, I was quite pleased and, and actually somewhat relieved that he seemed happy with the effort. He gave out recordings of the show as Christmas presents that year. I think... One thing that knocked me out of being so terribly impressed with myself as having gotten a Stoker nomination after only a few publications was the fact that I had to spend all that time looking closely at the work of a really, really good writer doing that adaptation. I had to take it apart bit by bit and then 
put it back together again and doing so with all humility, realizing that I was meddling with something which, if not perfect, approached perfection in a way that I certainly had not done and maybe never would do. Flash forward a few years, Tony Smith at the Starship Sofa contacted Gene to get a story from him, and Gene agreed, then told Tony that this guy, Larry Santoro, here in Chicago, had adapted one of his stories, and why didn't he contact me, and etc., etc. So there it is, and that's how I came to be here. Anyway, thank you, Gene. Thank you for being what you are. A great writer, uh, always supportive of other people. Anyway, and thank you, Scott Couchman. Scott is becoming both a writer of science fiction fantasy and a voice actor. He's an instructional designer by day, a writer by night, podcaster occasionally. And he says he's a family geek and sleep-deprived zombie most of the time. And he thanks us. He says he's extremely happy to give back to the Starship Sofa family of shows, which provided many wonderful hours of enjoyment. A best to you, Scott, and thanks again for a great job with Innocent. Well, that about does it. Week eight, two months now. Oh, one more thing. As you're getting wrapped up for your walk home, I just wanted to mention this. I received a PDF proof copy of a book called Slices of Flesh. Uh, Slices of Flesh is a collection of horror flash fiction. It's being published by Dark Moon Books. Slices of Flesh is scheduled for launch at the World Horror Convention this coming March 29th through April 1st in Salt Lake City. Cover art on it is by Mike Mignola, uh, Hellboy fame, with uh, Dave Stewart doing the color work. And I'm mentioning this not because I've got a story in it, but because I wanted to bring this project to you. The, the net proceeds from Slices of Flesh are going to aid project literacy, you know, helping the more than 30 million functionally illiterate American adults to learn to read. Uh, that's one of the primary uh, beneficiaries. Uh, in addition, the Stephen and Tabitha King Foundation will be beneficiaries. Anyway, I, I just wanted to mention it because it's got flash fiction by some of the great people in the field. Uh, Linda Addison is there. Uh, uh, Nancy Kilpatrick, Tim LeBone, William F. Nolan. Good grief. William F. Nolan. Jason Brock. Uh, I, I shouldn't even mention people individually. Uh, there are about 80 of them, I think. Simon Clark, uh, Del House, and Rick Hatchula, uh, Amy Gresh, uh, people from both sides of the Atlantic have contributed this. So when it comes out, I hope you'll take a look at it and uh, pick it up. It's for a good cause. Anyway, that's it. Show eight, bundle up. Have a good walk home. It's not as cold as it has been, but it is dark out there. And when you get home, you can go to bed, think about our little apocalyptic evening, and have pleasant dreams. Mm -hmm.
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.